0: Talking Theatre, with Sir Holworth Felix Stowe-Smooth, the only podcast on Earth about the theatre. Music expresses that which cannot be put into words. Victor Hugo there, perfectly describing that magic link between the musical theatre, opera, and ballet, and crucially, what separates these forms from straight, modern, and classical dramatic literature? Music has infected the theatre for so long now, and these song and dance expressions have birthed not just new genres, but a new way of expression altogether. They say that to be truly authentic, one must sing and dance like nobody is watching. Well, in the musical theatre, opera, and ballet... It so often feels as though the performers don't realise anyone is watching, doesn't it? Because it is so... oh, what's the word? Bad. Good day. My name is with Felix smooth, and I must welcome you again to another episode in this series which I host so well. Talking theatre. The only podcast on the earth about the theatre. Two bits of business to begin with today, before we get to moving and to grooving, and both a cause for celebration. Firstly, I want to send my congratulations to my eldest son, Godba, on what will be Completion Day for him. I know it's been a very long time coming, and he's worked very hard to make it happen, and I'm glad I can now report he is, indeed, completely and wholly divorced from his dreadful bitch of an ex-wife "'Cindy. She certainly did all she could to tug at the heartstrings, but God, you did well to deflect it with a kind of ruthlessness I didn't think you had in you, but which is so often necessary in any good old divorce.' I must take a little credit, if I may, I was the one who assured you, was I not, that if you dragged it out long enough she'd run out of the required money to continue an accomplished legal campaign, and that a reasonable judge would see this and her diminishing funds as prophetic moving forward, awarding you both houses, all three cars, and full custody of the little children. And I was right. Also, banging Judge Jeffreys a few quid helped a bit wonderful stuff now divorce is hard admittedly and you wouldn't wish for it unnecessarily but it is no secret that the family didn't take to cindy her excessive charity work was all a bit arrogant if you ask me and anyone who goes into teaching surely has no ambition and that knows regardless though i do hope cindy gets the help she needs By which, of course, I mean extremely restrictive, thorough, and perhaps occasionally aggressive psychiatric therapy and confinement. I'm certainly not one for excessive punishments. Rehabilitation should take centre stage, always, but I think, occasionally, one must take an exception, and I do think in this case she'd benefit in the long term from being roughed up a bit. It's worth mentioning here that the three independent assessments made of Cindy yielded no positive results of any psychosis, but we look forward to the results of the further three we are having commissioned. And whilst we wait for the science on this, I am perfectly within my right to give my opinion, which is and has always been consistent, and that is that she's mad as a bag of old cats. And that knows. My second congratulations today must go to, well, (laughs) me and the good people and iguana here at Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. We have had our first review ladies and gentlemen, and very lovely it is, too. Now, I know I have already taped next week's episode, which essentially takes 30 minutes to say how useless theatrical criticism is and how all critics are either frustrated actors or frustrated directors or frustrated serial killers, but I think since this review is very gushy, I'll take an exception and say, yes, you know, sometimes a review does know what it's talking about, and this one knows what it's talking about. I don't think anyone could call that bias. Of course, if there were to call it bias in a, I don't know, sarky little blog or tweet or three-page article, then indeed my point will have been once again proven that 99% of these so-called keyboard critics are just poisonous little know-it-nots who should stick to playing computer games, eating excessively and masturbating quietly so their mum can't hear next door. Leave the echelance of high art to those of us brave enough to actually make it. If we want opinions on how to achieve level 2 of Mario Kart, or how to achieve orgasm with the use of an old sock while sobbing at the same time, well, we'll get in touch. Lovely little review, though, it must be said. But to today's episode musicals opera and ballet eh? those three sisters who have taken the stages by storm and have a gun to the heads of classical legitimate and good theatre and who are willing to dispatch them if their demands aren't met demands such as Oh, I don't know. Possession of all the good theatres for a minimum of 25 years. Musical theatre. The wanton destruction of all the feet of young girls who otherwise would still be able to walk past 40. Ballet. And all the money of the lunatic wealthy. Opera. What are they? And what is the appeal? Fucked if I know, but Sean has done me some Wikipedia printout, so it is as always. On with the show. I must declare at the outset how ludicrous it would be of me to attempt to go into great detail in this episode with regard to all three topics. Rest assured that the giblets of each form are digested thoroughly in subsequent episodes. This early intervention is merely a brief but worthy assessment of the appeal of each area, with a light foray into the tropes and genetic conventions. For goodness sakes! Thirteen minutes would hardly be enough time to prove, say, how remarkable the work of Stephen Sondheim is. Neither would it be enough time to demonstrate quite how appalling Amanda Holden was in Trek the Musical. Honestly, so bad. I had my assistant send her a cease and desist letter in the interval. When that failed, I phoned Simon Cow and told him that unless the title of his well-loved TV programme, Britain's Got Talent, was ironic, he really ought to throw her off the show, preferably physically. Now, we must tread carefully with these topics and, like the performances of Meg Ryan, resign ourselves to simply scratching the surface. Incidentally, on Sondheim, I've nothing but praises, however a difficult man it is to like. At the opening night soiree of his Broadway hit about exploring furniture materials, Into the Woods, I sidled up to him to congratulate him. But no sooner had I said, Mr. Sondheim, your songs are sh- had he thrown his entire porn star martini in my face. It seems Stevie S. is so used to critically bad notices that he preempted my shit and countered it with a liquid defense. The only trouble was I had no intention of saying shit and was actually to say that his songs were shimmering stars in the often dark and gloomy firmament of the musical theater. Nevertheless, He threw the drink in my face and stormed out, slinging his glass at the wall, narrowly missing Joel Grey. Thank goodness the man is practically a midget. It went right over him. It wasn't a complete waste, though. Having exquisite vowel extensions, my mouth was suitably agape as the drink was thrown, and I'd say 75% of it went into the mouth, which I subsequently swallowed. So effectively, I was bought a drink by the greatest living musical composer on the planet. He might have told me the olive was up my nose before he left there. I spent the whole party with it lodged neath the septum. Treasured memories of a forgotten age. Anyway, we digress. To the musical. It's true that Andrew Webber, who I don't mention enough on this podcast, has done all he can to kill off the modern musical by writing the most divisive, disagreeable, and downright perplexing pieces in the history of the genre. His pieces are widely regarded as demonstrating just why the art form is devoid of any real value and is more than just a little bit mental as a concept. Yet it persists. Then there's the subject matters. Even the stage images of fascist Eva Peron as a pin-up girl, Elaine Page as a slutty pussy, or the multitude of multicoloured ribbons pulled from what looks like the anus of the smug narcissist Joseph in the show's fetish finale aren't enough to turn the yearning masses off. And still... Shaftesbury Avenue is lit up with the clicking cameras and the chirping excitement of the musical theatre superfans. So what is it all about? What makes the form so damn popular? Well, if you shut your faces and let me get a word in edgeways, I'll tell you. There are many things that make the musical both popular and, as we say in the business, batch it in equal measure. Its defining feature is the singing. Characters will sing consistently when it does not warrant it, when it is the most annoying, and when it is completely inappropriate. Think of a charming, quiet, and serious moment as a character dies on stage. Leaving this world is the most seriousness of businesses, but in a musical, what is likely to follow is the swell of music so loud it can blow half the eardrums of the perplexed audience in an instant. And, of course, it's completely unrealistic. The only time I've seen something similar in real life was when my Aunt Augustus had a heart attack outside the Royal Albert Hall during the last night of the proms and timed it perfectly so that her heart ruptured on the opening bars of Rural Britannia. Of course, on stage, it's a nonsense. But as a general device, singing is the barbed hook for the musical theatre fanatic fish. Then there is the way in which the musical performers sing, their technique. The Oxford Encyclopedia suggests there are as many as five million confirmed types of musical theatre singing, and it's the constant moving between them in real time which experts suggest is the hypnotic process that has so many audience members completely deluded and dumbstruck with love for a patently horrendous art form. Perhaps the most frequently used is vibrato, otherwise known as the common warble. It's used mostly by those who can't sing in tune and those who think it's impressive, like a sort of party trick. You know the sort. Oh look at me. I can warble, aren't I? Great. Essentially, it is a form of cheat singing or cheating, and audiences are deeply affected by its power. The actor will sing flat and sharp so quickly that they flutter like a hummingbird over the actual note until the audience are either in a trance or passed out completely. This was confirmed when a study of audience members who had just seen the hit show Wicked were asked about their favourite moment. They all confirmed it was the end of Act one finale defying gravity, but when asked what actually happened in those moments, not one of them could describe the action, plot, or even tell you who the current monarch was. Further investigation led the team to the CCTV footage of the oratoria, and what could clearly be seen was the entire audience passing out as Elphaba, the leading character, applies the severest form of riffing vibrato on record. The effect is pure ecstasy, leaving the musical theatre fan with the feeling they have experienced it all, but just like the crack addict taking a massive hit of the good stuff, they're not actually flying to Mars and back on a cloud of money and tits. They've been in the dirty bog the entire time, with the police banging on the door, ready to take them to the mad and the bad house. A dangerous delusion. There can be no doubt. I fear we'll touch on plenty of singing tropes in future episodes, so we'll move on. But other notable tropes that perhaps you should all look out for in time for the next lecture on the subject would be Patti LePone's lip curl, Bernadette Peters' cat's ass ooval, Edina Menzel's square mouth. Julie Andrews' pre-recorded high note, Michael Ball's donkey honk, and Elaine Stritcher's growl. The latter, of course, no longer in evidence, as she's dead. If you can get past the singing, then you'll be met next with the dancing. It very much follows the same formula, and in the world of the musical, whole towns, countries, races, religions and creeds can tap dance. That much you should know. That is to say, they all own shoes, which have the requisite type, amount and quality of metal attached to specific parts of their shoes, which allow them to make a very annoying tapping noise as they fart ass about in their little worlds. Again, unrealistic. If I catch Sean, my partner, even tapping his foot along lightly to the gramophone of an evening, then I can get so incensed, I literally smash the living room to pieces, causing, as was the last time, somewhere in the region of three and a half thousand pounds worth of damage. To be fair to me, I warned you, Sean. And yet, on the stage, in a musical, there is something about systemic tapping to music that is clearly too loud and too brashy that is beguiling, especially if it's done by young men in tight trousers with strong jaws and eyes you could swim in. Most importantly, the singing and the dancing in the musical theatre and the accompanying tropes within them all work together for a very important reason, and that is to distract from what is pretty shoddy acting all round. As the leading Shakespeare actor of at least the last three generations, I'm embarrassed to say I've not managed yet to get into a stage musical, precisely because I am too good an actor. Movie musicals I have coming out of my asshole, they're a ten a penny, and a different matter altogether. But the stage musical really requires the sort of acting you'd expect from a... I don't know, a six-year-old whose first subject at school is maths, but who has a mother who always wanted to be an actress and so forces them onto the stage with threats of her own suicide if they won't comply, that sort of thing. In short, there are many acting tropes in the stage musical theatre, but they're all under the umbrella of simply bad, crude and one-dimensional performance. And that's all there is to it. As common and as popular these customs and tropes are, they have long been debated and discussed, sometimes to obscene lengths. I once saw Liza Minnelli throttling Babra Streisand backstage at the Grammys as they argued over the origin of the jazz hand. Babra insisted, as she always does, that it was invented by New Yorkian Jews, and Liza, as she always does, insisted Bob Fosse invented it. I was waiting to present the award for Best Newcomer to Tom Jones, but the incident put me in a difficult position, as I knew very well. They were both wrong, and that the jazz hand originated in the early 1920s by an out-of-town Japanese puppetry company. On the eve of their press night, the dopey stage manager had left all the puppets in the locked tour bus and lost the key. So they had no choice but to perform that entire show without any rather than the usual host of quirky felt material characters bobbing up and down, the fifty strong cast simply bobbed their hands up and down, occasionally shimmering the palm, sometimes flashing the fingers up and a down and up and down and up and a down them. To their surprise, the critics loved it, with the New York Times calling the use of hand posturing inspired, and surely the defining mark of the jazz age. Thus you had the jazz hand. You see, it's little nuggets like this that give musical theatre its uniqueness, and why it's considered so remarkable. I've stopped talking to both Streisand and Manelli. Babs and I fell out when she wouldn't accept that I wasn't a New Yorkian Jew, even though I provided a full ancestral history for her as we were shopping in the large mall she has in her basement. Manelli and I kept in contact for longer, but eventually closed our own chapter when she wouldn't accept that Fosse hadn't invented the common garden pea. When I told her I had no proof but that surely the notion was preposterous, she did a high kick, sending the breakfast table flying, stood, and said, ''Oh, it may be preposterous, Holworth, but let's not say it can't be true.'' And with full orchestral underscore, she cakewalked out of Sardis. I never did work out where she kept that orchestra hidden but I suspect it's either in her hair or in the flares of her sparkly trousers. That's jazz. I said my love to them both, of course, wishing them health, by which I mean new sets of knees, hips, and, of course, vocal cords. I must also remind them of the court injunctions at the same time and warn them that the law still mandates they must always be more than a hundred feet from my person, and in Liza's case, must under no circumstances sing ever again. I can't bear The truth is, the all-singing, all-dancing, mediocre acting experience of the musical allows the poor masses a form of escapism from their otherwise dull and dreary lives. For a few shillings apiece, or a crate of fresh fish, any village idiot can gain entry to another world with the mere rise of the red curtain and the striking up of the house band, a one and a two and a three and a four, albeit a bizarre, unintelligible, and drug-trip-like world. Who wouldn't want to see a French thief buy a small child, lie to her her entire life about being her parent, and drive the government official who was just trying to do his job in catching you to suicide? Who wouldn't want to see a disgraced nun look after the richest and most annoying children in Austria, whilst the oldest one of the bunch tries to pork a Nazi postman? And who wouldn't want to see a village of Jewish people being very Jewish until a large group of non-Jewish people come along and tell them to stop being Jewish and to leave their Jewish village so they leave to go to another Jewish village to continue being Jewish? I wouldn't, that's for sure. But a scarily large amount of people do, and that's fine. So that is musicals. You're listening to Talking Siesa, the only podcast on Earth about the Siesa. Up next, we'll be exploring the upper-class versions of the musical theatre, Opera and Ballet. But for now, I must take toilet. This new medication I'm on gives me absolutely no time and no relief if you catch my drift. So it's a perfect opportunity to have a word from this week's sponsors. Sumptuous, sugary, love it, mm. perfect, uh. Uh. sexy chocolate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ooh, yeah. oh. You like it, don't you? You want it, don't you? The sexy chocolate. I want the sexy chocolate so bad. Sexy chocolate. You want the sexy chocolate Give it to me. Buy my lovely creamy thick sexy Six chocolate Sexy chocolate Sexy chocolate I want that sexy chocolate This was a special moment uh. Sexy chocolate are proud sponsors of Talking Theater The only podcast on uh, About the theater Mariah Callas, probably the most famous prima donna in the history of opera, said, An opera begins long before the curtain goes up, and ends long after it has come down. It starts in my imagination, it becomes my life, and it stays part of my life long before the curtain comes down. And I couldn't agree with her criticism more. Yes, Mariah is right. Operas are too long, and often psychologically damaging. There's no doubt that the situation in which an opera patron is placed in is a stressful one. If straining to work out what is going on because you don't speak the language isn't hard enough, then fast-moving surtitles are also placed above the stage, forcing you to frantically move between the action on stage and the screen attached high up over the proscenium arch, if you want to have a bloody clue what's going on. If that's still not enough to drive you to tears and shaking and making toilet in your panties, then how about having the hundred-strong cast screaming in your face for four to five hours, underscored by a loud, obnoxious orchestra that literally never stopped playing, from the start to the bloody finish. It really is the sort of panic-attack-inducing stuff you'd expect to find as a contestant on ITV's The Cube more than you would as a piece of evening's light entertainment. And to top it off, the realisation, basically spent two months' worth of your mortgage money on the tickets What a ruse. The whole business is not dissimilar to when I go to my local IKEA cafe, where loud and incessant shopping music is a continual distraction as I try valiantly to both read the menu and make out what the Swedish cashier Jakob is shouting at me. I just want the meatballs, Jakob. Just the meaty meatballs and the delicious Swedish sauce, Jakob. Jakob! I must say, though, that on price there is no comparison. IKEA are, and have always been, in my opinion, leaders in the field of value for money. Their furniture is easy to assemble, sturdy and fashionable, and I'll fight anybody who says otherwise. I mean it. Say one wrong word and I will thump you. It's as simple as that. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Perhaps you think I'm a pushover, do you? A lovey. An old todger whose threats to defend the Swedish immigrant furniture-assembling population of the UK are empty and should be disregarded. Well, to you, I say this, I may be over 80, but a knife is a knife. As a side note, I was most pleased to have met Mariah Callis in March of 1902, t- 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 while I was checking in my mother to an old folks' home which specialised in housing former opera singers. Mother Smooth had led the Royal Opera House Company for ten years as the leading soprano, until 1952, when a snake took her tongue in Marrakesh. The aptly named Fading Stars Retirement Home came with high recommendations. Oscar winner Mark Ryland said he put his father in ten years ago and hadn't heard from him once, which was very reassuring, and we were obviously excited to get mother in and unburden ourselves as soon as possible. Mariah, meanwhile, was a resident at the time and often sat herself close to the entrance, dressed head to toe in a kimono, wafting a large fan and gently humming like Madame Butterfly, waiting for her soldier to return. According to the nurses, the soldier in question was indeed symbolic of the real family members who had checked her in some months earlier to what she believed was a weekend spa retreat for her birthday. When we arrived, though, she hid her deep sadness and despair and welcomed us with open arms. "'I do recall chastising her for not rising as my mother made her entrance, "'as is the custom when one prima donna meets another, "'but Callus said she was confined to her wheelchair, "'and though she had no paperwork to evidence her excuse, I believed her. "'Well, I let it go, at least. "'It was at this encounter I came to know where she had got her name, Callus, She told me that having come from a family of hod-carriers, Callus actually referred to the scarring of the rough skin on the inside of her hands, which she had inherited from generations of bricklaying Italian ruffians, and rough as badger's arses they were too. When she took my face into her hands to embrace me as I went to leave, the mere brush of her palms against my cheek grazed the skin so heavily that I was forced to call my physician from the car. More curiously, she seemed to revel in it smiling knowingly as i withdrew from her holding my blood sodden cheek when i asked her if she knew she might induce a facial hemorrhage by touching me as she did she held my gaze began to laugh quietly and switching to her native italian told the nurses to tell me she'd take care of my mother as we got in the car and began to pull away i took one last look back and to my amazement right in front of my eyes quite on purpose callus rose from her wheelchair with ease gave me the middle finger and kicked a pigeon as it crossed her path. Touché, I thought. Touché. Callous my name. Callous my nature! Listen, before we move on, I must say a word for the culture of the opera. Even if we have established the art itself is impenetrable and comparable to a challenge in the Aztec zone of the crystal maze, it's very hard in these times of segregation and inequality because there is so often a move against those parts of us and what we do to rectify it, attempting, if you will, to merge the higher and the lower forms. Opera is one of those areas which, I am pleased to say, is largely untouched and untainted by the dirty hands of axis and equality. Musical theatre has at least gone some way to protect that idea by so often being the special friend or remedial sibling to the overachieving Oxbridge candidate that opera so clearly is. I'm rather proud of that metaphor, I must say. I believe wholeheartedly that the classes should mix, don't get me wrong, but it must be on our terms. Let them have their Lion King, and if I want to go and see a little trite piece of puppetry theatre, I'll pop along and have half a shandy and wear my trousers round my arse and drop my tees. I'll make the effort to mix, but otherwise I'll stick to Shakespeare and Chopin, to Pinter and Puccini, to Verdi and Vanbrugh, because at the end of the day it comes down not to what happens upon the stage. Who cares, right? but rather being able to say you can afford to go and that you understand what's going on. That's all that really matters. In this sense, class really is simply the difference between those intelligent enough to buy a programme and read the synopsis before they watch a piece of opera and those who intelligence barely allows them to work out how to buy two tickets to Mamma Mia from a third-rate bargain-ticket website. So that is the opera. According to a scientist I spoke to on the bus yesterday I'm not certain it was a scientist, but he did have a white coat on glasses and fuzzy hair. Ballet was like opera, but with the verbose singing replaced with verbose dancing. In other words, where opera singers have compulsion to splurt from their gob box, regardless of whether the audience like it or not, for ballet, the condition metastasizes to the extremities. I was buoyed by these scientists' assertions, which very much chimed with my own assumptions, and so I followed it with some research on the Yahoo, and discovered that ballet, which in Latin translates roughly as flouncy-bouncy, originated as a form of martial arts before it was a dance in the late 15th century. Primarily used as self-defense, young girls were taught various forms of leaping or arabesques in order to escape the clutches of the naissance attacker, perhaps vaulting fences and walls when necessary, while he looks on deflated, and perhaps even deflating, if you know what I mean. If they could not escape quick enough through leaping, then girls were taught to stand on their toes, later called being on point, whilst also reaching up to the sky. It was thought this would help the victims appear larger in the hope they might frighten the attacker off, a technique which is used now more among hunters who come across bears than ladies in trouble. If the attacker still tried to grab for the lady, she may have no choice but to attempt a series of swift plies, a technique which involves a deep dip, bending at the knees, allowing the criminal swings and lunges to be dodged. All these and more proved to be useful for generations, but it was only when a theatre producer, walking home one night, saw an attack taking place that it all changed. Walking home from seeing that week's public beheading, he happened across a hapless woman leaping like a gazelle over a car, trying valiantly to get away from some thieving grobler. He stood mesmerised at her beauty as she pleaded for her life, as well as attempting triple pirouettes to confuse the attacker. Eventually, he overcame her and clobbered her into the mud. But the die had been cast, and renowned producer Jacob Calhalligan realised in an instant the potential of ballet as a performance piece. He rushed home to plan a fully-fledged production, and that combined with a quick call to a composer he knew about the potential he'd seen in the swans down the pond early in the day, was where the ballet we know and love today, well, no, was born. I must confess at this juncture that I was a ballet boy myself, and so preparing this exquisite piece of podcasting has been such a trip down memory lane. As I am reminded so sweetly, I must pay tribute to my ballet teacher, Mr. Winson, who we affectionately referred to as Mr. Windy, because whenever he would demonstrate a plie, he would always release a potent gas from his bowels. <laughs> oh, God. oh, bless him. I laugh now, but he really did turn the windows green with those farts. Felicity Thomas, a short, ginger, anemic girl, would regularly pass out because of it. I once had to EpiPen her after she began fitting the morning after the annual teacher's curry night. He was everything you would expect from a ballet teacher. Stern, forthright, and dressed head to toe in a flesh-coloured leotard from dawn until dusk. And he worked you mercilessly. If your plié wasn't deep enough, he'd take a large stick and bop you on the bottom. (laughs) Naughty, naughty, he'd say. And if your arabesque wasn't high enough, he'd take his large stick and bop you on the bottom. (laughs) He'd say, he'd say, naughty, naughty. And if you brought his tea in and it was too hot, or it was not hot enough, or, or it was warm, or it, or it was wet, you guessed it, you guessed it. Another Bob bo- of the Boss. <laughs> and he would say, naughty, naughty. Oh. But he was just as egregious with his praise as his punishment. And if your pirouette was straight and well-balanced, or, or your jeté was flighty, or, or he thought your hair looked nice that day then you'd be asked to stay back after class, and it was on to his lap for a great big long cuddle. He really made you feel so special. It's teaching like that that one misses these days. I'm not entirely sure what happens to Mr. Winson, but a quick Google pulled up an article about his house being burned down by a group of vigilante parents, though it didn't say why. The parents should be pretty ashamed, though, if you ask me. He did a lot for the community. He always took as many children as he could. The classes were packed, and they were so cheap. It's hard to see what he got out of it, because it could not have been for the money. Anyway, I was most pleased to read he'd moved away and was fascinated to find that he changed profession and joined the priesthood, retiring after a few years to Rome, where I believed he ended his days just a few years ago, actually, in the Vatican. Quite the rise, it has to be said. I hope, deep down... He's still bopping bottoms and offering his lap to all the children in heaven. And for eternity. That's what ballet is really about. It's technique, it's discipline, and it's love. Should it be in the theatre? No, I don't think so. Not for me personally. Like opera, it goes on too long. And like musical theatre, it's unrealistic. Swans cannot dance. And very showy-offy it is as well. So that's ballet. And such a correspondence. This week, Galt Lahore, 47, from Bangor, writes in with a very curious question, indeed. Hello, Galt. He writes, Holworth, you bastard. You won't remember me, but we worked together in the UK tour of Waiting for Godot back in 2010. I never really understood what the hell was going on every night as I watched from the tech box, but your Vladimir brought me to tears so often, especially when you were actually going for laughs. I've been most impressed with your podcast, but wondered if you're going to feature any crew members or production teamwork at any point. We really are the unsung heroes of the profession, and you have a chance to put us on the map with your relatively small but worthy platform. That's an interesting way of putting it, Galt. After all, with people like me in the lighting box, audiences wouldn't be able to see your great performances. You probably also owe it to Tim, the sound op, for the almost year of abuse and harassment you put him through. Have you forgotten about that? Have you? Have you? Have you? It's worth pointing out as well here, listener, that he has capitalised the last have you and underlined it. He continues. I suppose my question, then, is this. Seeing as musicals, operas and ballets are such high-tech and large operations these days, with the production elements like sound and lighting playing an ever-integral role, don't you think it's time we acknowledge the contribution of the backstage crew and designers more? And what would be the best way to do such a thing? Wishing you all the best for the rest of the series. I severely doubt that. And I haven't forgot you. Still owe me fifty pound. By the way, regards, Galt. No. <laughs> oh, gold, 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 Oh, gold, gold. Oh, it sounds like I'm clearing my throat, not saying your name. Let me start by saying I don't really remember you, unfortunately. But from reading your letter, I get a sense of why my mind may have gone to some length to erase you altogether. Your letter, Galt, doesn't so much read as inquisitive correspondence as it does a desperate attempt to draw attention to yourself and your situation and your life, which, if I were you, I wouldn't do. You sad, sad, sad little man. But look, harmless bantering aside, I will take your questions seriously and try to answer them because, at my heart, I I am a professional, unlike others in the industry who really are an embarrassment and ought to shut their mouths whenever they have the urge to speak especially when it comes to a knight of the realm. Never forget, I have a direct line to the Duke of Edinburgh, and he'll take your fucking head off. Now, to your question. Do I think it's time we acknowledge the contribution of those in the nether stage, and if so, how? Well, it's probably the how that is the tricky part of your question. Yes, of course, the crew and the designers do serve an important purpose. Without the stage manager... Who would stop the rehearsal with boring admin or health and safety considerations? Without the sound guy, who would there be to shout at when you're trying to cover for forgetting a line or singing a flat note? And without lighting operators like your good self, who would be there to pay child support to the two chorus girls they got up the duff because they're a morally bankrupt individual? So yes, I agree with with you. Yes, we need to acknowledge them. But how? How do we do it? it can't be visually, obviously. There's a reason the wings are dark, even though they're well hidden from the audience. It's because the actors don't need the visual distraction of specky virgins stood waiting to do their one job of pulling on a rope or handing somebody a prop once every ten pages, especially as they wait to go on and do the proper business of the evening, performing an entire show. And it can't be orally either. Nobody wants to hear from a techie. That's why they have to speak on those little telecom systems. It's not for convenience. It's because the director and the actors insist on the whiny voices of the crew being inaudible as much as is humanly possible. I suppose, having exhausted everything that leaves the acknowledgement of the crew, well, to the heart. There is indeed space in our hearts to thank the good people of the crew, silently, without fuss, a quiet and dignified thanks for their work off of the stage, even going so far as to deny it, orally and in writing, so long as it is felt, deep down, in the heart. On your last point, I admit, I did borrow £50 off you back in 2010. In fact, I remember it very well. I was on the set of Shutter Island in the day, and I needed to pay Ben Kingsley after he won a bet with me that he could get Leo DiCaprio to look at the floor after he told him very quickly, and with a muffled delivery, that he had, quote, dropped his gay card, end quote, I was sure DiCaprio was too smart to fall for the playground rules, but I was wrong, and he did indeed look very innocently to the floor, to which my heart sank, and Kingsley grabbed me by the throat and whispered into my ear, Fifty squids by tomorrow, or the Bichon Frise gets it. I had a Bichon Frise at the time. Now, I would prefer to never see or know you have been remunerated, so I have gifted the fifty pound to you in my will, and upon my death, when I am cold and lying on the ground, you will have it. And not before. I hope that satisfies you. I also hope that you don't listen to this podcast anymore, and that we sever all ties now. It would make me very uncomfortable, indeed, to believe that every week I was coming in your ears. Oh, and Tim deserved every damn bit of that. Galt Lahore, you absolute piece of shit. To you I say, good day. That's all we have time for today. And thank goodness it is because I need the toilet again. (laughs) I bloody kill that, Dr Grimble. I really will. I told him to be careful with dosage. I'm on the edge all the time. Join me next week when we'll be discussing, or rather cussing, theatre critics. And as always, I'll be asking the all-important questions like what actually is the use of a theatre critic? What actually is the use of a theatre review? And seriously... What actually is the use of a theatre critic in a theatre review? You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on Earth about the theatre. And so to you I say, good day.